good morning and welcome and welcome to those of you who have joined us online this morning. Uh, God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. Give me wisdom. You know just what to do. Uh, our staff started the year this year by reading uh, this book together, Atomic Habits by James Clear. I recommend it. Part of the premise of this book is you don't make real changes in your life by trying to make gigantic change. You, you make changes in your life by trying to make small incremental changes, which over the long term will result in big changes. And another part of the premise of this book is that we don't make changes, listen to this, we don't make changes by focusing on our goals. We make changes by focusing on the system. So, for example, lose weight this year is a goal that rarely ends up in long-term consistent weight loss. Instead, uh, James Clear recommends that we focus on the systems that build the right kind of weight for us. So we build a, a system of eating or a system of exercise, a system that will result in weight loss. Now, I've oversimplified, but you kind of get the idea. And it's been helpful for me already, this book. But still, we have to ask, even in the midst of all this self-improvement work, we have to ask, what are the habits toward which our system should point, right? I mean, what, what, are, the, what are the things that will produce our best future self? Some of these changes are obvious to us. We, we want to feel better or we may want to look better, we want to have a better relationship with our children, all good stuff, right and appropriate, but beyond that, what, what do we need to aim toward? What are the ingredients that will yield the best version of ourselves? So for the last several weeks and a couple more, we've been looking for our answer to that question to Jesus. Over the course of this series, we're asking, what did Jesus do to develop his followers? What was his training process? What ingredients did he stir in? And today, we're looking at the third ingredient in Jesus's recipe for self-improvement. Here it is. A central part of Jesus's development process was this. He gathered his followers and built them into a new community. This was a part of his development of them. He built them into a new community. So to achieve the best version of ourselves, we must invest in authentic Christian community. Now, I love the way Eugene Peterson put it. He said this, I can be no, there can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in my personal life apart from an immersion in and embrace of community. Listen to this, I am not myself by myself. So in our time today, we're going to do four things. We need to explain four things about this topic. First, we need to explain just how intentional Jesus was about this business of building community. Secondly, we need to remind ourselves just how critical community is for us. Third, we need to admit that we don't have it, not fully, not to the degree that we need it. And fourth, finally, we need to talk about how we get it. So I want to begin this morning before we leap into the topic proper. I want to kind of set the stage by looking at how Jesus gathered this community. And, and this will give you, primarily as we're reading this, I want you to be noticing, thinking about just how intentional he was in this process. I'm going to read kind of a long section this morning, and I'm going to bounce back and forth because I think that's sort of how the story worked. 
between a passage in John and then a passage in Matthew. And we're going to look at Jesus going out and seeking his small group. So we'll look first at John chapter 1, and I won't make you stand for the whole passage reading this morning, but let's go old school, even if you're at home, and stand out of reverence for God's Word. And I'm going to start by reading John 1, verse 38 and following. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, uh, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew Simon Peter's brother was one of the two who heard what John had said and who followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that's the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, you're Simon, son of John, you're going to be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. All right, you can be seated for the rest of this, and I'm going to flip over to Matthew 8 and tell you what I'm convinced happened next. So, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 4. So, Matthew chapter 4, I'm looking at verse 18 through 22. It says this, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and and I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to show you how to reach people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And finally, I'm going to go back now to chapter 1 of John and read the rest of the chapter, and we're going to hear the story of Nathaniel. The next day, Jesus decided to, to leave for Galilee Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me, Philip first. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, hey, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there, Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching him, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. There's no guile, some translations say. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before before Philip even called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than that. And then he added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, it's easy to read the biographies of Jesus without seeing how intentional this business was, this business of community development, but we shouldn't miss it. Here's what I mean. First of all, it was pretty standard in Jesus' day for students to seek out a rabbi in order to be mentored by the rabbi. Think of it a bit like, a student today looking for what college they want to go to. Now, sometimes a rabbi would invite a student in, and this was usually the case if it was a really promising, academically potential young man. But, but much more often, the student would do the seeking out. 
but not with Jesus. He picked his followers, all of them. And he wasn't looking for standout academic potential. He was, he was forming his own posse. He was building a small group. Can you see that? In fact, the Savior of the world spent an overwhelming majority of his time with 12 people. This was his strategy and his group. Well, it's hard to say much about his group because they didn't have very impressive resumes. And I'm convinced if they had had impressive resumes, we would know that information. The impression we're left with is that this is just a ragtag group of fairly typical, unschooled, blue-collar laborers. The only backstories we get, other than these brief references to fishing, are about Matthew. We didn't read Matthew's story, but if you know his story, you'll remember Matthew was a tax collector, which would have qualified him for universal scorn in the Jewish world. And then we get a brief little backstory about Nathaniel, which is really only about his character. His resume amounts to the fact that that he was a person without guile, and maybe that last bit is a hint. Anyway, Jesus picked these people, and he picked 12 the exact number, the special number of the ancient tribes of Israel. That may have been coincidental, coincidental, but it sure doesn't seem so. It it seems like he was signaling to them and to us that he was starting a brand new tribe, his own posse. Plus, along with the way he selected his disciples, if you understand the goal of the rabbinical process in the ancient world for everyone but Jesus, you can see why it's so surprising to hear Jesus describe the goal of his training process. Look, the the rabbi's job, the whole reason he existed in the ancient Jewish world was, and let me quote a Jewish historian here, quote, to train his disciples to emulate him and even surpass himself in knowledge and practice of the Torah. And and the Torah was what they called the first five books of the Bible. In other words, the rabbi's mentorship was, it was all aimed at knowing the law of God and following it flawlessly. But with Jesus, it was completely different. If you were here last week, You may remember that we referred to this. Jesus stated his goal process, the process of his whole training like this. John chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. And by that, everyone will know that you're one of my disciples if you love one another. The signal that you're a follower of Jesus is what? It's love. It's connection, and he calls it a new command. I mean, this wasn't a new idea, but I think the emphasis that Jesus gave it was new. It's as if Jesus is saying, this is the point of everything, love. And this is the point of our work together. It's love, it's connection. We're trying to love God more and to love one another better. Now, some of you are, I'm sure, familiar with the time when an expert in the law probably a rabbi himself, asked Jesus to name the greatest commandment. And Jesus answered. I mean, out of the hundreds of commandments, Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And they added, you know, the second one, just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then this incredible summary statement. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. What? In other words, Everything God has said and done up to this point, pretty much summarized in those two commandments. This man was building community. 
because that's one of the keys to us being the best version of ourselves. Okay, so why do we say this? Why is investing in community one of the keys to us being our best? Don't snooze on this. Look, if you're part of Gateway, I know that you've heard me say this many, many times. I know I'm beating a dead horse here. I'm going to go ahead and beat it because community building is so critically, vitally important for us, for us to be our best selves. So simply put, we must invest in community to be our best selves because we were designed for it. This is who we are. We were made for it. We learn this from the third page of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, when God created Adam, his first observation about Adam was, it's not good for the man to be alone. He will spend entirely too much time with the remote control. It's not good for man to be alone. Or, to quote Frankenstein from the 1935 movie, The Bride of Frankenstein, alone, bad, friend, good. Listen, not only do we see that Jesus made this central to, central to the development process, but we also see the first followers got it. The phrase, one another, is used over 50 times in the New Testament. Encourage one another. Train one another. Exhort one another. Teach one another. Love one another. Over and over again, we are challenged to one another, one another. And, and you can't do any of that alone. You can only do that in community. Dr. Robert Waldinger is the current director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. There have been four because this is an 83-year-long study of human happiness. There's never been a study conducted of this long a tenure. They've studied the lives of 724 men from two vastly different backgrounds, intentionally so. Half of the men were Harvard sophomores in 1938. The other half were born in Boston's most disadvantaged neighborhood. And the researchers were given incredibly intimate access into the lives of these men. Medical records, annual testimonies and, and uh, surveys, surveys of their families, surveys of their workplaces. Dr. Waldinger summarizes the findings of this long-term study in a TED Talk called What Makes a Good Life? You should, you should watch that talk sometime and hear about the construction of this study. It's amazing. Dr. Waldinger begins his talk with this question. Check this. If you were going to invest in your future best self, where would you invest your time and your energy? He allows that when surveyed, almost every generation suggests at the beginning of their lives something like, you know, a sanitized version of fame and fortune. But Dr. Waldinger claims that all of the research points to one single resounding answer to this question. It boils down to one thing, not a, not a, not a, not a catalog, not a, a long list of things that we should do. One thing is the key to our future best self. Let me quote Dr. Waldinger here. I'm going to put this on the screen for you. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. Beyond this, he offers three observations about this fact that they've learned from this study. Check this. Observation number one, social connections are really good for us and loneliness kills us. 
Observation number two. It's not the number of friends you have or whether or not you're in a committed relationship like a marriage. It's the quality of the relationships you have. I got to say a little bit more about this one. Again, I want you to listen to Dr. Waldinger. I'm going to quote. Once we had followed our men all the way into their 80s, we wanted to look back at midlife to see if we could predict who was going to grow into a happy, healthy octogenarian and who wasn't. So they, they examined the, the reams of data that they had about these men in their 50s. They knew who they were in their 80s, and they wanted to see if there were things that were predictive about happiness and health. It wasn't their middle-aged... Coll- I'm sorry, and when we gathered together everything we knew about them at age 50, it wasn't their middle-aged cholesterol levels that predicted how they were going to grow old. It was how satisfied they were in their relationships. The people who were the most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. Period. Third observation they made, relationships don't just protect our bodies, they protect our brains. There's simply too much research on this topic for us to survey it all, but I just want to point to one more recent study, the most recent study that I've seen, a recent study by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. They made many observations about the dangers of isolation. I'm just going to list a few of them for you. First, loneliness was associated with higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. You would expect that. Second, social isolation was associated with about a 50% increased risk of dementia. Third, poor social relationships characterized by social isolation or loneliness was associated with, check this out, 29% increased risk of heart disease, a 32% increased risk of stroke. And this one, I'm going to put this on the screen for you. Social isolation significantly increased a person's risk of premature death from all causes, a risk that statistically rivaled those of smoking, obesity, and physical activity. A moment ago, I started this little section with the question, why is community one of the keys to us being our best self? That's not an adequate question, is it? It's almost like asking, why is oxygen a key to us becoming our best self? Community isn't just important, it's critical to our health and our happiness. Remember, Jesus didn't just emphasize it. I believe the Bible makes it clear that this was a key part of how he developed people. During his work with uh, the Gallup polling organization, a guy named Marcus Buckingham, who's written several books and become a, a widely known speaker at business conferences, he did extensive research on what leads to happy, satisfied workers because happy workers become more productive workers. So Buckingham helped develop a set of 12 questions that their research indicated were the keys to worker satisfaction. There are obvious questions like, do you know what's expected of you at work? But there was one question that stood out to me, especially because of our topic, that was a bit surprising. One of the 12 questions that key indicators of worker satisfaction and health, do you have a best friend at work? Buckingham's research showed that this is a key indicator of worker satisfaction because community is critical to our personal development. All right, here's the thing. We know this. We know it's important. We may forget how important it is, but we know it doesn't feel good to be isolated. So if we know this, 
pandemic aside, then why don't we have more of it? Why haven't we surrounded ourselves with authentic Christian community that oozes all around us? All right. <clears throat> Pause for dramatic effect and step back from that. Let's allow, this is a complex question with a complex answer. And to a degree, I know the answer differs from person to person to person. So my answer right now comes with, that I'm going to give right now comes with a serious caveat. I'm going to answer from a big picture, from very general perspective. And that's dangerous because as I said, there are as many different answers as there are people here. One example of a difference might be, for instance, physical challenges uh, that, that limit our capacity to develop community. And an example of that would be those of us who struggle with serious chronic health concerns that can sometimes be, be limited. But still, there are things that all of us can learn from the big picture general answer about why we don't have this in our lives or some of you do, why we don't have more, why we don't always enter in. I think there are things that we can learn and that we need to admit in response to the big picture answer, so let's give it. Let's give the general biblical principle for why we don't have this more or more helpfully or at all. We find the answer very, very early in the story of human beings. In Genesis chapter 3, essentially four pages into our story, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And do you remember what happened next? This is not going to be on the screen. I, I think most of you are familiar with this story. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 says this. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then verse 9 and 10 add to that picture. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. When they sinned, these first human beings established our species-wide pattern. They covered themselves and they hid. Then if possible, it gets worse. God said, wait, who told you that you were naked? The man said, the woman you put here, she did this. Then God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So to the awful business of covering themselves and hiding, they added blame shifting and lying. In this way, they guaranteed that their relationships could never be the same again. In this way, they did irreparable damage, and this is what we do. Generally speaking, this is why we don't have more healthier, deeper, and richer, authentic Christian community. We cover our hurt and our need. We simply don't ask for help. We don't admit. We tell ourselves we don't want to be a burden, or worse, we, we lie about how we're doing, and we blame circumstances and other people saying that they're the real cause and not us. When, when we're hurt or disappointed, we hide. We certainly don't speak the truth to the other person. We, we nurse our anger, or we shift the blame through lashing out and accusing. We accuse everyone else that it's all their fault, and by doing that, we deepen our isolation. We don't find an honest and loving way to tell the other young family that their child is way too aggressive with ours. We don't probe 
the marriage that has obvious tension and difficulty. We don't admit that our marriage is far less than we had hoped for, that our finances are, are frighteningly tentative right now, that we can't handle our child's disability, that we've been looking at things on the internet that are deeply damaging to us spiritually. And when someone else tiptoes into one of those areas, we run for cover, run for the hills, and hide. We don't enter in. We tell ourselves we're too busy. That's a lie. We choose what we invest in. I'm, I'm very glad that many of you work very hard, but that's a choice. I'm glad that you're invested heavily in your children. That's a choice. I believe those are almost always God-honoring choices, but they're choices, and we have not chosen community. And you're too busy not to be in community. I remember years ago, I was meeting semi-regularly with a group of men when one day one of the guys in this meeting decided to get brutally honest. And he confessed about what he had been interacting with on the internet. It was a very active, very current, and deeply embarrassing admission. And can you guess the result? It wasn't shocked horror, it wasn't judgment, it was instant community. Now, being honest and opening up to others certainly has to be done well, it has to be done at the right time, and it has to be done for the right reasons. And opening up and being honest with others about themselves, that really has to be done well and at the right time, and for the right reasons. And it's hard, and it can be messy, but there is no community without it. And we cannot be our best selves without community. All right, so let's take this home. How do we find authentic Christian community? How do we find it? Let me say, first of all, that I'm, I'm going to offer two starter principles here. Very obvious Starter principles. I don't have this, I offer this as a fellow traveler. I don't have this figured out by any means. Those of you who know me well know this. I'm as clueless and as covered up as the rest of you, but I've at least been struggling with this question for a very long time, and I feel like there are some basic things that God has dropped on my life, and I'm going to offer two of the most basic this morning. First, first starter principle. You have to find a posse that works for you. You have to find a posse that works for you. Isolated friendships are great, and that's, a, that's an awesome starting point for developing authentic Christian community, but a circle of friends is even better. This is, after all, what Jesus modeled for us. I think this is what the author of Hebrews was getting at. I want you to listen to this. I'm not going to put this on the screen. I want you to listen to this and listen to it in the context of the conversation that we've just had. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let's consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let's encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Find a posse and meet regularly with them. This is, by the way, why we have small groups at Gateway. 
quick commercial. We're starting a new small group season in a couple of weeks, and we would love to have you sign up in an attempt to try to find your posse. Go to mygateway.life and sign up for a small group. If you don't know what you're in for, welcome to the club. None of the rest of us do either. So find a posse and find one that works for you. If you're regularly hanging out with a group or if you're attending a gateway small group and you find that you just simply cannot connect at all, well, that might not be your posse. That's okay. But don't give up. You need to find a posse that works for you. And can I say a word of warning about that? You know, doesn't work for you at all. Go find another one. One warning about that. We often feel like what we need to find is relaxed and sameness. We don't, we, we don't want to be with a group of people that just makes us do a lot of work. And we, we like to find people who are just like us. But what we need, what we need is not relaxed and sameness. What we need is real and safeness. So first, identify a posse that works for you. Secondly, invest. This isn't easy, but it's not complicated. Invest. We have to give it time. We have to invest. Dr. Robert Wuthnow is a sociology professor at Princeton University, and he, he concentrates his research on the study of groups, group dynamics and small groups. I want you to hear the uh, summary of one of his articles on this subject. He says this, I'm going to quote, the enormous literature on the subject suggests that small groups do not just happen. Because they are intentional rather than spontaneous, they require some degree of planning, organization, and coordination. Thank you, Captain Obvious. You have to invest. You don't get community without investment. We have an eight-week study on building community that we engage with regularly here at Gateway every sometimes a couple of times a year or once a year. It's pretty intense, and it's time-consuming, very, for a short burst of time, but it gives a very thorough perspective on what we've talked about today. The last week's lesson in that study covers habits that help us develop and deepen our community connections. Three of those habits are, are, are appropriate in this context, so we call them the, the disciplines of connection. Listen to this. They are the disciplines of connection, the habits that help us work this in, that help us invest. They are work together, play together, and pray together. Work together, play together, and pray together. This is a significant part of how we build the bonds of community. This is what our investment will look like. To begin to build community, you and I have to first Identify a posse that works for us, and then invest. All right. Mark Twain was an American author and humorist. Uh, let's, let's end with Mark Twain this morning. Mark Twain said, There isn't time, so brief is life, for bickerings, apologies, heartburnings, callings to account. There's only time for loving, and but an instant, so to speak, for that. Time's wasting, you all. Let's get busy. To achieve the best version of ourselves, we must invest in authentic Christian community. Let's close in prayer. Father, help us to hear your 
your call, your, your, the call of our own heart, our own makeup. This is not a suggestion. This is who we are. I thank you so much, Lord, for the connections that you have made. For me personally and over my life, but for others of us here at Gateway, I thank you. I thank you that there is some of this that has been worked into our lives. And I just pray, Lord, that you will continue to deepen, expand, enrich. And for others of us, Lord, embolden us to step in and invest. I mean, Lord, this is one of those that we do for selfish reasons. This is the this is a giant step in us becoming the best version of ourselves. So, Lord, help us. I want to pray in particular for those who feel that they are completely without connection. God, I pray that you will open up the door of their own heart, their own mind, and open up the door of opportunity. Even in the, in the middle of the weirdness that we're in right now, God, I pray for the doors of connection to be opened. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, we bless you and love you, because that's our first priority, and that's, that's, that's the North Star of our community. So this morning, we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.